Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. It's great to see you this morning. Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5? We finally made it to chapter 5. It's taken us all summer long, and now you look outside and it looks like it's December already. So it's taken us a long time to get to chapter 5, but here we are. 1 John chapter 5. The title for today is This One Thing Overcomes All of Culture's Force. This One Thing Overcomes All of Culture's Force. Our culture, I'm sure you've already realized, has, has a way of doing things. And I'm sure that you have also realized that 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 flies in the face of God's way of doing things. When you go to work tomorrow, you will be the one that's working hard even when the boss isn't there. All all your other coworkers are going to sit around and be as lazy as humanly possible. You doing the heavy lifting, as soon as the boss comes around the corner, they all stand up, they all start working, looking as if everyone's been working while you've been doing the only one doing the work. That God's way of doing things is different than our culture's way of doing things. When someone's a Christian, they raise their children differently. They have a different outlook on life. They do things differently when they're believers than when someone is a non-Christian and a parent. And a Christian teenager is going to respond to their parents' parents' parenting, whether their parents are Christians or not, in a different way than a non-Christian teenager is going to respond to that Christian parent. All that to say is, our culture has a way of doing things, and, and that flies in the face of the way that God's ways of doing things. And that's the purpose of this letter. The purpose of the letter is to tell the difference between someone who is a believer, someone who is a Christian, and someone who's not. Someone who's in versus someone who's out. Someone who is a believer versus someone who says that they're a believer. Someone who genuinely is saved by Jesus Christ versus someone who is pretending to be saved by Jesus Christ. And the reason for this letter is because of this newly minted Christianity. <laughs> it was called Gnosticism, had infiltrated, and it was morphing Christianity. And this new religion called Gnosticism was starting to, to pull in and was changing what Christianity was. Gnosticism, one of the key tenets, as you well know, we've talked about this key tenet particularly before, is that the flesh or the physical things are anything physical, anything that is um, practical, anything that's human, anything that you can touch, anything physical is evil, and anything that is of the spirit realm is righteous, is holy, is good. And so if Jesus is God, if he is holy and he's righteous, Remember, anything human is unholy, and so Jesus can't be human if Jesus is God. And so the Gnostics would say, we're just here to protect the credibility of Jesus, and that sounds good, doesn't it? Don't we all want to protect the the credibility and nature of Jesus Christ? So they would say that if Jesus really is God, and he is, then he could not have been human. Of course, that's not biblical, but it sounds pretty good. And that's why there's all this confusion going on in the church, who's really a Christian and who is not really a Christian. And so that is the, that's what's growing up with Christianity at the same time. Gnosticism, Christianity are growing up in the exact same era at the exact same time, you know, like when you had your kids and you wanted to have kids when, when your friends did or when your siblings did so that your kids would have cousins and cousins would grow up together. Well, Gnosticism and Christianity are like cousins that are growing up with each other in the first century. And so that's why John addresses it, but John's not the only one who addresses it. Paul addresses it. I'll show you in a little bit where Paul addresses this Gnosticism. Uh, most of the books in the New Testament address the, the issues with Gnosticism, but that didn't kill it off. Just because the apostles addressed these issues, that did not kill off the Gnostic ways or Gnosticism. Gnosticism is like the, the lie that will never die. It's the, it's the heresy that just continues on into all of eternity. It's the lie that won't die. Gnosticism is alive and well today. Generally, or in broad speaking, we live in a very Gnostic culture today. You just don't know it because this is just our culture, you know? It's easy to look back on someone else and say this is what it was like back then, but Gnosticism is alive and well today. And it affects many parts of the lives that we live as human beings and as Christians today. It affects 
our marriage. I'm just going to pick one way so you can see how Gnosticism affects even today Christians and their culture today. It affects our marriages. Now, the key tenet of Gnosticism that affects marriages is this whole idea of the fleshly being evil, the physical being evil, that you have to, in order to be righteous, you need to deny the flesh, you need to deny your body, you need to cling to the spirituality, cling to the spiritual things, cling to the the things that are not physical. And so, in the first century, the early Gnostics, they would do just that. They would deny their bodies. They would wear uh, scratchy clothes just to make their body hurt. I don't know. They would eat bland McDonald's <laughs> just to make their body pay a price, you know. They would sleep on boards. They would deny themselves any forms of sexuality because in order to reach the peak of, of spiritual um, uh, conclusion in your life, that you had to deny anything that was physical, anything that was human, anything that felt good. And so Gnostics, if you were a married couple, and if you went to uh, marriage counseling as a married couple, they would tell you that in order to grow more spiritual, to grow more godly, you need to avoid all forms of sex in your marriage. And no doubt, this is why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 7, And if you don't know what that is, I will show it to you in just a minute. But this is an issue pervasive in the culture in the first century. Someone as far as to castrate themselves in order to move further away from the flesh, to deny their body even that much so that they could grow more spiritual in some way to grow closer to God or to be more holy or that God would like them even more. And unfortunately, Gnosticism and this effect in the marriage is still alive and well today in our culture too. I have had someone tell me that the more spiritual a person becomes, the less they desire sex with their spouse. The more spiritual you become, the less you desire sex with your spouse. Like like the sexual intercourse, the marriage bed, for a married couple is like the the cherry on top, you know, at the very beginning, it's, you, you want to eat the entire thing. But then after a while, you don't need the cherry on top anymore, that, that everything else is just fine. And that ple- sexual pleasure within marriage is just the cherry on top. There have been women that have said that God wants them to deny sex to their husbands so that their husbands can grow more spiritual, grow more godly. There are married couples, maybe, maybe you're here in this room, there are married couples, Christian married couples, that are afraid, they are scared because they enjoy sex with their spouse too much and they need to limit themselves because they're enjoying it too much. Now, none of this is true, none of this is godly, but they're afraid that, people are afraid that it is. This is Gnosticism that has just merged down through the generations, into our own culture. It sounds religious, doesn't it? But it's not biblical at all. I want to counter those lies in marriage with the way that God thinks. Remember, the way that our culture thinks, the way that the world thinks, sometimes is completely counter the way that God thinks. This is the way that God thinks about marriage and the marriage bed and pleasure within marriage. In Proverbs chapter 5, it says this, let your fountain be blessed. The word fountain is just referring to a man's sexuality. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always in her love. Sometimes that word exhilarated is sometimes translated, depending on your Bible, it will be translated intoxicated. Always in her love. And notice what it tells a husband to do. To be satisfied with the physical features of his wife's body. We're not talking spiritual stuff. We're talking the physical part of her body, that he is to experience pleasure from that, not just sometimes, not every 
once in a while, but all the time to be exhilarated with her body, to be intoxicated with her body. This is God's marriage advice to couples who are being told by the culture to, maybe you should come apart from each other and then you'll grow more spiritual. Of course, in Song of Solomon, with this topic, you know we had to get there. Song of Solomon, it says, I have come into my garden. This is a, this is a, a new husband, a man, talking about consummating his, the marriage night with his wife. He says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And now God concludes this as, a, um, as, as an affirmation of what's happening on this wedding night. And God says, eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. That's not the same advice that you would get in a lot of counseling rooms in the first century. This is God's command to be drunk in sexual love with your spouse on your wedding night. This is not move away from the physical to be more spiritual. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians tells us it's come close physically in order to grow spiritually. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I th- this is exactly why Paul wrote this, is because of Gnosticism going on in the first century. It says this, the husband must fulfill his duty to, to his wife. Now, this is not referring to a husband's duty to bring home the bacon or his duty to protect the family or his duty in any other way except sexually. This is make sure, husband, that your wife is fulfilled sexually, not you, her. Make sure that your wife has everything that she needs sexually. That is a husband's responsibility to make sure his wife is completely fulfilled sexually. But not only that, it says, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Also, the wife needs to make sure that her husband is completely satisfied sexually. This isn't referring to her duty in the home or with children or Proverbs 31 or any of those other things. This is sexual in nature, physical marriage bed, sex together. And so the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. It says stop depriving one another sexually. This is not the advice that you would get in the marriage counseling room in the first century under Gnosticism. It says don't deprive each other physically. Enjoy each other's physical bodies. Make sure that they have everything that they need physically. And it says uh, except for um, stop depriving one another, accept agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again. He's just saying, okay, you got to go to church and pray sometime, okay? Take a break, okay? You can be in your marriage bed Sunday morning, but take a break, put some clothes on, go to church, okay? 11.30 comes around, you can go back home, go at it again, Okay? And notice that this isn't only physical. It's not only physical. It's not just the bodies. This is also spiritual. And that's where where Paul takes it. He says, and come together again sexually so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice that it tells a Christian married couple who is married together to fulfill each other physically, sexually, so that then they will be able to live a more godly life. If you are not falling into temptation, you can grow spiritually. And so the, the marriage bed, pleasure within marriage, is not the cherry on top where you, you can take it or leave it. Sexual pleasure within marriage, according to, to God's word, is it is the, the eggs and the, and, and the flour that are the ingredients for a healthy marriage, sexual pleasure. And so God doesn't just allow Christians to have enjoyment in their marriage bed. He commands it. He doesn't just allow Christians to um, experience the, the wonderful pleasures there. He, he requires that they do physically so that they can grow spiritually. Gnosticism is everywhere. It infiltrates to, into every part of your life. I could do the same thing with any other part of your life that you're thinking of. 
but that's just one of them. Narcissism is a lie that won't die, and our culture is soaked in it, and we need to reject this kind of idea, and the way that we reject this is by godly, biblical thinking. We, we can have victory over the world's, the culture's way of doing things. Yeah, our culture has a way of doing things. I get it. And yes, it does fly in the face of what God wants to do instead. But that doesn't mean that we have to do what our culture does. That's the message of 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Let's read these five verses that we're studying today, and then we'll jump into it. It says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and observe His commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, even in just a cursory reading of this, you can tell this is is about overcoming the world. You can see in verses 4 and 5, that phrase, overcomes the world. Who is the one who overcomes the world? Well, what does that mean? What does that mean to be an overcomer of the world? The world there is the Greek word kosmos overcoming the cosmos. Now, what does that mean? Whenever you read in the Bible a word, you have to know what it means. Now, we've already addressed this word already in 1 John, and so for some of you, this will be a two-minute review. Some people weren't here for this, so you need to know what this word world, cosmos, is referring to. Whenever you're reading in the Bible and you get to the word world or cosmos, it's one of three things. It is referring to either one the planet earth overcoming the world the planet earth the cosmos okay the 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 the, the lakes the atmosphere the ducks uh, alligators the the globe every creation the cosmos right? and so even in john the beginning of john he introduces jesus christ as Uh, the one who created the world. That's who Jesus is. He created the world. It's referring to the cosmos, everything uh, in our universe, okay? So, when you get to the word cosmos, it could mean, one, the cosmos, the world, the planet Earth, the physical planet. It could mean, cosmos could mean, the human beings on planet Earth. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loves the world. He's not loving the the lakes and the atmosphere and the ducks. That's not who He loved that He gave His only begotten Son for. That that this is the people of of planet Earth, the people that are placed on the, the globe, on the rock cosmos could either be the rock, the globe, the universe, that sort of thing. It could mean the people that are there, or it could refer to the world system, the culture of the people on the globe, the invisible, spiritual, evil culture of the people that are living on the globe. And so when you get to the word cosmos, you have to come to the conclusion of what does this mean? And so in verses 4 and 5, when it says that, 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 who is the one who overcomes the world? Which one of these three is it referring to? Well, it's not referring to overcoming the physical planet Earth. Okay? You can't do that. It's here. <laughs> this is not referring to overcoming individual people on planet Earth. This is referring to overcoming, being victors over the evil world system, the world culture as it exists, as opposed to the, wor- the culture of God, God's culture versus the world's culture, being overcomers of the world's culture, the way the world does things. Now, of course, the world's culture, the, the citizens of the world certainly have a way of doing things, and that flies in the face of God's way of doing things. Just think of all the ways. Who do you date? What do you do on those dates? Who do you marry? What do you do in your marriage? 
What do you do in your marriage bed? See, all of these things are going to be different in the world's culture versus God's culture. Where do you spend your money? How do you spend your downtime? How do we treat babies that are in the womb? How do we treat the elderly that are infirmed? The way that the world system deals with those things is different than the way that God's culture deals with those things. How do we handle stress? What do you get angry about? How do students take tests at school, and are they using chat GPT to do their homework or not? <laughs> the, the way that a Christian, the way that, that the God's way of doing things is different than the world's way of doing things in all these different areas, and there is only one way. There is a way to overcome the world's culture. There's a way to be victorious over this world's culture. But it's not in the ways that maybe you're thinking about. It's, it's not where you can just say, okay, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to put my own bootstraps. Okay, I'm just going to do it. And I'm just going to muscle. I'm going to be better than that. That's not the way that you do it. That's not the way that you overcome the world's culture. It's not by watching a different news channel. I'm moving from this one to this one. And now... I've overcome the world. That's not the way that you do it. It's not by changing the talk radio station that you listen to in the car. You don't overcome the world by moving to a place where there are fewer people that are going to affect you and you're going to see. That's not the way that you overcome the world. How does a person overcome this evil world system that we live in? Well, we've read how. Look at verse 1 of 1 John chapter 5. It says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. And we're going to go through this verse kind of like word for word, just so that we understand what's, what's being said. It says, whoever. This is like an all-encompassing term for all, or maybe really better, any, anybody, the, the entire group, all the things of the group that come after this, whoever, whatever comes after this is in, including that entire group, everybody in this entire group, okay, whoever, the next word is believes. This is being persuaded that something is true. This isn't just like a mental assent, oh yeah, I could see how that could be. This is a genuine belief that it is really true. For instance, Last night, the Dodgers were, were playing, and it went into extra, extra innings, and I have to preach the next day, so I go to bed, right? Now, the Dodgers, let's just say, aren't real good in extra innings. I would, I would bet most of my money on the Dodgers losing in extra innings. So on our way to church today, I asked the rest of the family, so the Dodgers lost, huh? <laughs> and my wife said, no, they won, and I said... I don't believe it. I don't even believe that's true because I, I was going to bet my money that they were going to lose, but they won. But I came back and I actually looked it up on my computer when I got here because I didn't quite believe my wife when she said that the Dodgers won an extra innings because it's just impossible. And so belief is not just hearing something and saying, oh yeah, I could see how, maybe that might be true. I could see how that could be true. That's not belief. Belief is a, a conviction. It moves from your mind, it moves from your brain to, to, to something deeper inside of a person where now they, they own it. They don't just believe, they, can, they can't just see how someone else could see that or how that could be true or there's a possibility. They, they, they believe it. They, they own it. Deep in, they would bet all of their money on it. That they would bet their life on this thing being true. They used to believe something else, but now they are convicted in their own heart that this thing is true. That's belief. That's why often in the New Testament we see the phrase, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Now, repent and believe aren't like two separate things where first you're going to do all of this one thing and then you're going to do all of this other thing. Repent just means change your mind. Repent just means go the other direction. And that's what believing is, that you believed this one thing, but now you believe this other thing. 
And this other thing is a, a convicted truth within inside of you. There's nothing that could change your mind about this belief. So this isn't just a, oh, yeah, I believe you. I believe you. You know, sometimes when you say, yeah, I believe you, you really mean, <laughs> I don't believe you, but I'm just saying I believe you so I don't have to fight about this anymore. It's not that kind of belief. It's something that you own, that you are convicted with. So anybody, whoever believes what? Well, it says that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus, the Greek word is Christos, the, the, um, the anointed one, the, the Messiah. He is, he is the one that, 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 that the Bible describes. Do you believe that Jesus is the anointed one, the one that has been talked about from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, that he's the second person of the Trinity, come to earth, being born of a virgin, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, that he is the payment for our sins. He wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a teacher. He didn't just launch a, a, a movement that has the best book ever, best-selling book ever sold. He, he's, he's something more than that. He is the perfect one that is anointed to be the payment for our sins. He is the, the, the sinless sacrifice that dies on the cross for, for the sins of the world. For God so loved the world that whoever believes, there's that word, believes in him. Whoever believes in him. Notice that's how this is, whoever believes in him. Whoever believes in him will not perish, will not spend in, in eternity in hell because of their own sin. Will not perish but they'll have life. They'll have eternal life because when a person puts their belief, their convicted conclusion that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that Jesus is the Savior that has died for my sin, and that's a good thing because I can't die for my own sin. I can't, I can't be good enough. I can't be nice enough. That there's only one way to eternity in heaven, and it's that someone else to make a way. And this Jesus is the way when you put your belief, your convicted conclusion on that Jesus, that he, dies, that he died for your sin, that that death on the cross was like for your sin. It's paid for, your sin is removed, it's forgiven, and then you can be reconciled to, to God. Whoever believes that Jesus is that anointed one, the, 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 the Christos, the, the Messiah that has died on the cross for sin. So this group of people, everybody in this group, not in other groups that believe that the Dodgers won or whatever it is, but the, one, the people who believe this thing, that Jesus is the, the Christos, that he is the anointed one, that he is the Messiah, what happens to them? Well, it says that they are born of God. They are born into a new family. They are, they, they, they are adopted into God's family. They are born into a new culture. They are born into a new world. They are born into a new way of doing things. The way that it's described in the Gospel of John, this is the way that Jesus says that this happens. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he says, Truly, I say to you that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's God's Holy Spirit. When you put your faith and your belief in Jesus, God's Holy Spirit, the third person trinity, comes and lives inside of you. He's the regenerating power. He's the one that, uh, that, that, that is the, 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 the one that, clean, that, that cleans you up from the inside out. Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going, so everyone who is born of the Spirit... Jesus says everyone must be born of God in order to go to heaven. Everyone must be born of God. You can't believe other things. You have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Whoever believes other things, they are not going to heaven. Those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they are the sons of God. They are born into this family. They're born into this new culture. They're born into these new ways. What's interesting about that phrase, born, and then second line, of God, that, that is a, a Greek phrase that is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense. Um, and that just means that it is a completed action, that completed, that completed action produced results, 
And those results are still in effect all the way up until today. That's what perfect tense means. There could be other examples of that, but we don't have time for it. A completed action that had results then, and those results extend all the way until today. And what's interesting is, in the first century, that was true, that Jesus had died, and now they were born, they were children of God, even still to this day, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, they were born of God, they were children of God. But what's interesting about that, it's still true today that those same people who were born of God in the first century, and they were reading this and they were saying, yes, I am still born of God, the same is true for those people today too, that they are still born of God. That is still true, that this perfect tense goes, goes from the past all the way until the present wherever the present is. That's kind of an interesting idea. So here we are in 2023, and those of you who put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ 40 years ago, you are still a child of God today. It is a perfect salvation. You can't can't climb out of God's hands. You're perfectly saved. And so we look back at this verse, it says, whoever or all of the people in the group who believes this convicted um, conclusion, not only in their mind, but in their being, their soul, their heart, who they are, that Jesus is the, the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah, well, they are born of God. Not just back then, but they are still born of God today in the perfect tense. They, they were born of God, and they are still born of God today. Now, as John is writing this, I want to remind you that this is written to Christians, So this isn't like really a gospel message exactly, um, because he's writing this saying, you are, you are saved, you are Christians, and this is the only way to overcome, to have victory over the world's culture, is to be by being born into a new family. (laughs) You can't move away from it, you can't muscle it, you can't get smart enough to overcome it. The only way to overcome the culture system is to be born into a new family and into a new way. That's the only way. It's the only possible way to do it like that. And so right about this time is where people who are thinking, and you're thinking, you're thinking, yeah, but what about those people who who confess Christ at some point in their life and then now today don't at all? You know, like they used to profess Christ and then later on they, they... Either their lives completely show they're not at all, <laughs> they, they, they don't at all have anything to do with Christ, or they even say, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. I have a lot of friends like this. I grew up in the church. My parents were Christians, and so I grew up in a Christian school. And so I have a lot of friends, junior high, proclaiming Christ. By the time they graduate high school, they want nothing to do with Jesus at all. And so what about them? Are they really saved? Are they really children of God? I mean, after all, they claimed Christ at some point in time. Are they they really saved even until this day now when it looks like they're not saved at all? What about those people? Well, there's one of two things that's going on with them, but not a third. One of two things is happening in their life, but there's not a third thing that's happening. One thing that could be happening in this person who claimed Christ at some point in time, you might know someone like this, they might have been active in the church and maybe even served in ministry with you, and then all of a sudden they, they disassociate themselves from anything about Christianity or anything. One thing that could be happening in them is that they are genuinely saved. They genuinely have believed, and they're having a momentary <laughs> crisis in their life, and they're doing a, they have a lot of questions that they're asking God right now, like Job, something like that. But they really are saved. And at some point in time, they'll rise above all of that. And the good news is, even during this downtime, the good news is that they are genuinely saved. They're saved by Christ. You can't, you can't climb out of God's hand at all. Though biblically, that's very rare. You don't see a lot of that in Scripture. Theologically, it's possible but you don't see a lot of that. So, one, this person could 
be a genuine believer and they're just going through a bad day, week, month, century, you know. The other one, which is much more likely, is that yes, they profess Christ, but they never believed it. That's what the way that Romans kind of describes it. In Romans 10, it describes how someone is saved. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But it's possible for someone to confess Christ and not ever really believe. They don't take that as a convicted conclusion for themselves. And so either they genuinely believe and they're really saved or they didn't genuinely believe and they confessed Christ for a lot of other reasons. They came to Grace Community Church because they were having a difficult time in their marriage or they just lost their job or their grandma just went to heaven and they're distraught and they're emotional and they're just hoping that claiming Christ is going to solve all my problems. There's not a, there's not a, a belief in Christ and the need of a Savior. There, none of, that's not there. Just I'm hoping that this solves a problem. Sometimes people confess Christ not for their own problems, but for other people's problems. They come to church because they hope that church is going to be the silver bullet for their teenager or that church is going to be the silver bullet for their spouse. So they claim Christ, they get all active, hoping that this is going to solve all of their problems, and when it doesn't, then they just go back to the way that it's always been. Sometimes it's they, they never believed um, maybe it's just that they had bad theology. They just didn't understand how salvation really even worked. That's why I try to teach it simply and clearly all the time. Some people think that just because they're good, they're automatically Christian. Hey, I live in a Christian nation, and I'm pretty good, at least better than the person I'm sitting next to. And so then they claim Christ. I'm a Christian. Or they were born into a Christian family, and they, that's just the only culture that they know. You know, they, they were born, seven days later, they're in the church nursery. They get raised in the church. They're going to church every Sunday. They go to church every Wednesday. They memorize the Bible at, at, at home. They go to Christian school, and that's just all that they know. So then in junior high at a Christian school, it's no surprise that all of my friends would say, yes, of course, I'm a Christian. Just because I just grew up in a Christian. But that's not, how you, that's not where salvation comes from. It's from a conviction, a belief in your heart that Jesus is the Christos, that he's the anointed one that you need as the Messiah to save you from your sins. <laughs> Not what family you're in. Maybe it's just someone had bad theology, like God just saves everyone. God wouldn't be a meanie. He just saves everyone. Maybe you have the opposite theology. Well, God just picked me. I didn't even want to be picked, but he just picked me, and so here we go. I'm Christian. And so all of, there's a, a lot of reasons why someone could claim Christ and then not really be saved. As a matter of fact, John has already addressed this in 1 John. Could just go back to chapter 2 in your Bibles in 1 John. Right now in your 1 John 5, just go back to 1 John chapter 2. You look at verse 19. 1 John 2, 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. The point is, is that these people were never Christians in the first place. They were in the church. They were a part of the church. They, they, uh, they, you might have known them in your small group, but they were never really saved. And the way that we know that they were never really saved is not from their profession, but from what their life is like now later on. Now we know <laughs> that they weren't really saved at the beginning. And so what about this friend that you know uh, from junior high that claimed Christ and now rejects any of it either in their lifestyle or even with their words? Well, one, maybe they were genuinely believed they were really saved and they're just going through a bad patch and, and God will pull them through eventually. Or... Much more likely, they were never really saved in the first place, and now their true colors are just being shown. And the reality is, us, you might never know which one of those two it is, because we don't know the heart, you know what I mean? So it could be that they really saved, it could be that they weren't really ever saved in the first place, but a third thing is not true. It's not that they were saved, and now they're not. It's not that. 
Because salvation is being born into God's family. It is a perfect tense sort of thing. Once it occurs, you don't get born of God and then you like die of God and get born into a, the world's culture again and then maybe later on come back to Christ and get born of God again. See, none of this is in Scripture. That, that either you are in God's hands or you are not. So that person that you know, they might be saved and going through a lot of hard time, you just be praying for them, or they're not really saved and their lifestyle is just showing it and so you need to pray for them a lot, <laughs> either one. But they did not lose their salvation because salvation is in the perfect tense. loves the Father, uh, loves the children born of Him. By this we know that the children of God, that we love and observe His commandments. So here we go. One is that you love the children of God. And this love of God, by the way, isn't like an emotional crying or love like, like I'm in love, emotional, um, amorous love towards God. It's a love with a desire to, to please Him. It's that kind of love. That's what it's talking about here. And one of the ways that you show your love to God for what He has done through you, through Jesus Christ and being born in the family, is that, one, you love the other children of God, other people who have been born of God, other people who are Christians, that you would love them also. That's one way that you could tell someone who's a believer. That's repeated in 1 John. Other people who love other Christians too. And the other way is that you keep His commandments. That's what verse 2 moves into verse 3, says that. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. The proof of genuine salvation is loving God by loving other people and by loving His command, by wanting to be obedient to Him, by having the desire to be obedient to the way that God God directs our lives. It's not frustrating. It's not painful. It's not burdensome. It's, it's hard. <laughs> it is difficult, but it's, it's not burdensome for a Christian. They want to please God. They want to be obedient to His commands. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells His apostles in John chapter 15, He says this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Yep. That's one way to know that someone is a friend of God. One way to know that someone is a believer is that they are following the commands that are outlined in Scripture that was, of course, authored by Jesus Christ. And so following His commands is not difficult, it's not burdensome, and it's not hard. Then we get to the last two verses, and it says, "...for whoever is born of God overcomes the world." And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is where Christians get called a name. They get, they get called a name that is a new name for Christians. Christians have been called a lot of things over the years. Sometimes it only includes four letters. But God has called Christians a lot of things, too, that aren't four-letter words. God has called Christians long list of different names. I want to just read some of the names that God calls Christians. And these names have, have to do with the, the character of these people, the blessings that these people have, the privileges that these believers have. Each name is another descriptor about who a Christian is. So let me read some of the names that God in His Word calls Christians. He calls them believers. He calls them children, children of the light, children of God, children of the promise, sons of day, sons of the kingdom, friends of Jesus Christ, brethren, sheep, saints. Christians are called stewards, the chosen. Christians are called ambassadors of Christ, members of the body of Christ, they're called followers of Christ or sons of Abraham. They're called servants of Christ. They're called the sons of day. Christians are called a royal priesthood, the salt of the earth, lights in the world, heirs. Christians are called the way. Christians are called vessels for honor. 
They're called aliens. That's a good one. Aliens and strangers. They're called witnesses. And now here at the back of the New Testament, one of the last books to, to be written in the New Testament, now we get another word for Christians, another descriptor of Christians. And it's this word, overcomer. And that is descriptive, another description of a believer. It's a, it was a really popular Greek word. It's a really popular concept in the Greek culture in the first century because the Greek culture believed that like ultimate victory, being like the ultimate victor, could not be attained by a mere mortal. If you're a mere mortal, touch yourself, okay, a, a mere mortal, if you are a mere mortal, you could not attain this ultimate victory. That you needed help. You needed help from the gods. And so in the, the Greek mythology, the Greeks had a goddess, a goddess of victory. And her name is Nike. Now you know why you're wearing the shoes that you were wearing. Because these are the shoes of victory. The Nikes. Okay? And so the goddess of victory... Nike, she's the one who helped Zeus battle against the Titans. Nike helps me win. That's, that's the word used here for overcomer. Nikeo, that's the word. Nike, the, the overcomer, the, the one that overcomes everything. And you know what's interesting? That is such a perfect word because it, does ha it, ha it has nothing to do with the mere mortals. Throughout the New Testament, this whole overcoming, having victory over the world and over Satan and over death, it is throughout the New Testament. I just want to show you a couple places because it is, it's a great word, and I'll show you why. It says, this is looking to the future in heaven. This is in Revelation chapter 12. It says, the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of the testimony. And they did not love their life even when they faced death. So how is it that these Christians were overcomers, even at the point of their death, even being accused by Satan, how was it that they could be overcomers? It wasn't themselves. It says here, they, were over, they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. That's absolutely right. No mere mortal could have this kind of victory. Mere mortals need the help of someone. They need the help from God in Jesus Christ. Well, that's not the only place where this is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, uh, this body is perishable, it's human, it's going to have to put on the imperishable. It's going to have to go on into immortality. And this mortal will put on immortality. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that someone could claim victory at death and live beyond death? How in the world could you have that victory? No mere mortal can do that. That's not a mere mortal thing. But, but how do you get it? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is like the perfect word. Nikeo, overcomers. No mere mortal can get, you need, you need help. You need help from God. That is exactly right. Overcome, having victory, this ultimate victory, victory over what? Well, in verse 5 it says, overcoming the world, overcoming the cosmos, overcoming the, the way that the world does things. I'm sure that you've noticed that our culture has a way of doing things, and that flies in the face with God's way of doing things. And the only way to overcome the world's way of doing things is not to strap up and boot up and smart up and get ripped up and try to muscle through it. That is not how you can overcome the world. The way that you overcome the world is by being born of God, being born into a new family, being born into the, 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 the family of heaven where it's a new culture, the God's culture, the heavenly culture, it's a different culture. 
That's why this is so difficult. For, that's why living life is so hard for Christians, because we're living in a world where the culture does a certain thing. But here we are, we are really living in a different culture. We're born into a different culture. We're, we're living like heaven's culture, and it and it's so often flies in the face of the way that our culture does it. This is why the Christian life is so difficult, but this is how it can happen. It's possible. Did you know that it's possible in your marriage to overcome the way that the rest of the world does stuff in marriages? Did you know that it's possible to, to overcome the way that the rest of the culture does things at work? Do you know it's possible to, to do things different as a parent than all of the parenting books recommend? It's possible, but it's not possible because you got smarter or because you muscled up. It's because that there was a God who intervened for you. And any person who believes, whoever believes, conviction in their heart that Jesus is that Christ, the Savior of the world, they are born into this family too. There is always, there is always hope in Christ. Now, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, I want to at least give you the opportunity. After a sermon like that, I can't, I can't not at least give you the opportunity to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to believe upon Him. So I'm going to ask all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes? Just creates a little separation between you and the person next to you for just a minute. You don't get very often when you get to consider eternal things, but did you know that you can believe upon Christ today? You can be born into the family of God today. And if that's what you would like to do, I can't do it for you. You must deal with God on your own. You don't have to say anything out loud. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to walk anywhere. You just talk to the God who's in heaven. It's called prayer. If you're not sure even what to say in prayer, I can help you. Just in the quietness of your own heart, this is what you can say. He reads your mind. He understands your intentions. He knows your belief or lack thereof. And with this belief, you could talk to God. You could say, God, I, I know that I need a Savior. I realize that I would be paying for my sin in eternity in hell if it wasn't for someone to save me. I need a Savior. And I believe in the depths of my heart, I believe that Jesus is that Savior. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he came out of heaven and was born of a virgin. I believe that he lived a perfect life. I believe that when he died on the cross, he wasn't dying for his sin. I believe that he was dying for mine. And I put my belief, my, my trust, I, I, I put my faith in the death of this Jesus on the cross. I even believe in my heart that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that, that he proved that he was God when he rose from the dead. I put my eternity in the hands of this Jesus. I, I need to be saved now and forever. With their heads still bowed and your eyes still closed, the media promises that, yes, God, the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, does come and he immediately regenerates your soul, born into God's family. You might not feel it emotionally, but the promises are true. And the Holy Spirit will begin to clean up your life. So, God, we as a, we as a congregation, we thank you for your provision for us in that way, personally, that that we would have a, a Savior that we could believe in. And as the songs that we have sung this morning say, that this is merely through your grace. It's a gift. It's something that we did not deserve or we did not earn it. But it's only through your Son that we are able to become victors. It's by grace that we can be called overcomers. We aren't the overcomer. It's your Son in us. So that's why we worship you today, and we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.